Hi, this is ETF.com's Exchange Traded Fridays podcast, a weekly podcast covering developments in the ETF industry. My name is Samit Roy, and I'm Senior Analyst for ETF.com. And I'm Jeff Benjamin, Wealth Management Editor for ETF.com. This week, we got a special episode with not one, but two guests. First up, we're talking with Ryan McCormack, Senior Factor and Core Equity Strategist at Invesco, about the history and enormous success of the Invesco QQQ Trust. Then later, Eric Balchunas, Senior ETF Analyst at Bloomberg, is going to join us to dive deeper into QQQ, as well as other ETF-related topics. So you'll definitely want to stick around for that. Jeff, are you ready to get into it? Yeah, this is going to be a fun one. Let's go. All right, then. Let's kick things off with Invesco's Ryan McCormack. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Ryan, so almost everyone listening to this podcast has probably heard about QQQ, but not everyone is familiar with how it came to be such a powerhouse. Can you tell us about the history of this ETF? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. So so QQQ was launched uh, back in, in, in March of, of 1999 as the uh, as the NASDAQ 100 tracking stock. And, you know, as as the original name suggests, it, it, it tracks the NASDAQ 100 index, which is comprised of the 100 largest companies listed on the NASDAQ exchange X financials. Um, so I, I feel like I always have to explain that a little bit. Um, the, the index itself was launched back in, in January of 1985. And, and it includes no financials because on that that, that same date, NASDAQ launched the, the NASDAQ Financials Index, which I think at the time was was the one believed to have maybe more commercial viability. Um, but effectively, you know, since then, we, we've seen the NASDAQ 100 blossom into this, this preeminent large cap growth index. Um, and in 1999, there, were, there was a, a vehicle designed to, to track the index available for, for investors. You know, there, there have been multiple tickers back in, in 2004. Um, they changed their listing from the American Stock Exchange to the NASDAQ Exchange and changed its ticker from QQQ to QQQQ. So four Qs rather than three. Um, then again, in 2011, it changed its ticker symbol back to, to QQQ. So just the three Qs. Um, and from there, it, it, it really enjoyed a, a, a pretty significant performance run, you know, both in terms of, of, of fund performance, but also so in, in, in terms of inflows and, you know, we saw in 2017, the fund closed above $50 billion in assets for the first time. Um, it closed above $100 billion in assets for the first time in May of, of, of 2020. And in 2021, it closed above uh, $200 billion um, in assets for the first time. Um, so it's it, it, it's an ETF that is about to celebrate its its 25 year old um, anniversary, which is something you know only a, a handful of, of of funds out there can can boast. Um, and it's one that's that's one of the most widely used and and, and widely known funds out there in the marketplace. Hey Ryan, um, even with the uh, the changing ticker symbols and uh, various uh, efforts and evolutions over the 25 years. Uh, obviously, QQQ is incredibly popular. It's helped. Uh, we have it at over 217 billion in assets right now. Do you know? Do you have a sense for whether or not this is more popular with retail investors or financial advisors? You know, I I, I think it's a it's a pretty healthy mix. You know, we we, we see a, a a pretty a pretty widespread base of of, of users, whether it be 
you know, individual investors, whether it be financial advisors, whether it be firm-driven models, or, or, or even institutional investors. Um, it's the second most actively traded fund um, in terms of, of average daily value um, out there, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and with that, and, you know, being over 200 billion in, in assets, I mean, it certainly has appeal a, a, across that, that, that broad base of investors. Yeah. Um, I want to talk for a minute about the the unique structure, the unit investment trust structure of this that I'm, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but that's why we have you on here to talk to us about it, that it, it doesn't generate profits for Invesco, right? The, the money is funneled into marketing and promotion. Is that accurate? And can you break that down for us? Yeah, so it's 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 broken out in in the prospectus, but but you're absolutely right in that the structure of the unit trust, which was really just the more popular structure back in the '90s when when these these strategies were launched, the management fee is is driven to Invesco in basis points that are that are specifically designed for for marketing, right, rather than than your traditional fee. Um, I think that the benefit for this is is we've been able to to market QQQ on a on, on a pretty wide scale, right? I mean, I, I I challenge you to to go on CNBC or or or, or any other popular financial uh, television uh, network and, and go ten minutes without seeing a commercial for QQQ. Or you know, back in in a few years ago uh, in in 2019, it was announced as as the official ETF of the NCAA. We we've been able to use this this mm -hmm. this marketing to to develop you know financial education resources like our How Not to Suck at Money program. Um, so you know all of the success has, has a great name, right? Yeah. Um, all of the success, though, you know, I think has has benefited both both Qs, both investors, but 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 also Invesco, and and with it, we we've tried to to to, to try to take advantage of, of the halo effect um, in in terms of the name recognition of 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 the fund as well as just the letter Q. Um, and it's allowed us to sort of build out what we call our, our innovation suite, which has launched other funds like QQQM that tracks the NASDAQ 100 or QQQJ or QQQS that, that, that target the mid cap or small cap arena of the market. So, you know, while Invesco doesn't receive, you know, kind of direct compensation um, off of that management fee, we, we've certainly been able to, uh, uh, to enjoy some, some benefits of, of the additional mm -hmm. marketing that, that, that's been put forth. That is interesting that you have all that marketing uh, muscle behind this ETF, which because of this performance, one could argue doesn't even need that kind of promotion. Um, you know, people are going to chase a, a 25 year old ETF that has such outperformance, wouldn't you think? Yeah, you know, I think there's there, there's just a lot of, of of knowledge in the marketplace. I think there's a lot of familiarity with the product, and you know, some of the investors that that I've spoken through to, have spoken to, you know, have held this thing for for 10, 15, 20 plus years, right? Mm -hmm. And 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 whether it's early adopters or 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 folks that are maybe new to the ETF world, I mean, you know, QQQ we joke belongs on on the Mount Rushmore of of, of ETFs, <laughs> and again, there's there's certainly that uh, that knowledge base that that's inherent with a fund like this. All right. Well, thank you for that good information, Ryan McCormick of Invesco. Fantastic. That was great. So next up, we have Eric Balchunas, who is Senior ETF Analyst at Bloomberg and just an encyclopedia of knowledge when it comes to ETFs. Eric, great to have you on the podcast. Hey, great to be here. Eric, so we're entering the final month of 2023, and things seem to be looking up for the stock market. 
I just checked and SPY is something like 5% below its all-time high. But another popular ETF, the Invesco QQQ Trust, is doing even better. It's only around 3% below its peak level of about two years ago. I want to ask you about this ETF because it's just so interesting. Uh, a lot of people find the index underlying QQQ to be kind of arbitrary. You know, a stock is listed on the NASDAQ, it can be in the ETF. But if it's not listed on the NASDAQ, it can't be in the ETF. But that kind of arbitrariness hasn't hurt the ETF at all. It's this dominant force that just keeps outperforming and getting bigger. Has that surprised you? Yeah. It, it, well, it doesn't surprise me. Obviously, NASDAQ is an exchange that, again, as far as I can remember, you know, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, when they listed their companies there, Apple and Microsoft, has just been like the cool place to list your company if you're a juggernaut innovator in America. And I think everybody wanted to follow those guys. And so you've got some of the best companies in America there. And so I always find it to be like, kind of the exchange that that just attracted that sort of tech genius, um, you know, sleep four hours a night kind of like American <laughs> spirit that because the Qs isn't beta per se, it's it's only half tech even. Um, so it's an interesting anomaly. It's a little more concentrated at 100 names. So obviously its performance will go up or down more than the S&P. But what surprised this isn't that it does well generally, but how well it does, right? It's up 47% this year. It's just an amazing thing because the Qs was supposed to be like, oh, rates are low, easy money era. Of course, the Qs would do well. But then rates went up. And of course, 2022 was rough, but Qs bounced right back this year. And it's just the relentlessness of the Qs that really fascinates my team. In addition, we all look at value stocks. We look at small cap stocks. We look at international stocks. And they have these like three, four month runs. And we're like, okay. Maybe a regime is going to change. And it just never happens. The Qs mm -hmm. is like, oh, I hope you enjoyed your three months. I'm coming back. See ya. And again and again, it just dominates these other things that are like supposed to have their big long run as the Qs lags, but it just never does. Hey, Eric, what, what do you think? You might have already kind of answered part of this, but what do you think makes the Qs so unique and so popular aside from the performance? I remember writing my book on ETFs, the first one, and and I, I remember explaining in the book something that I've dealt with in data, my time in data for years. We went back and forth like five times classifying the queues as tech sector and then not tech sector. And I think that really defines the queues is that I'm an ETF nerd. I, my, I was tasked for 12 years in classifying all the ETFs, providing all the correct data. And even I went back and forth. Is it tech or not? And because like if you see a bunch of flows go into the queues, should that count as tech sector flows or not? I mean, you guys will probably understand how this is in, in spirit. I think it does, but it's only half tech. There are other companies in there that sell and do other things that are other industries. And that's why it's unique. The S&P to me is like, okay, let's take all the companies, market cap, weight them. Although that S&P has its own nuances, but nothing like the queues where it's it's not really it's not really beta to anything. Um, if if it's beta to anything, it's beta to again people who want to follow the cool kids and list on the Nasdaq. Eric, you know what's interesting as is that even as great as the Qs have done, you know, recently, 
If you look over the past five years, XLK, the Spider Tech ETF, it's outperformed the triple Qs by 5,000 basis points. And over the past 10 years, it's outperformed by 10,000 basis points with a 520% gain versus 400% for the Qs. That kind of suggests to me that even though the Qs are this kind of text proxy, it's an imperfect one. Like you said, only 50% or so tech. You would have been much better off in an actual tech ETF over the past five or 10 years. What would you tell investors who are looking to increase their allocations to tech through ETFs? Should they look at the queues or should they look at the dozens of other tech ETFs that are out there? It's a great question. I mean, it, it sort of depends what the rest of your portfolio looks like, right? Are you using this as hot sauce? Um, something where you have the fear of missing out and you want to make sure to add a little? In that case, I think you probably go with the tech ETF because it's going to have more active share. The Qs, a lot of these stocks are in the S&P. These have smaller weightings. So if you wanted to sell a little S&P and queue up your core, the, you know, the Q is probably better for that. But I think the reason that people would choose the Qs over XLK is that the returns are still right up there. I mean, they're, they're, it's not like they're lagging XLK by a lot. I mean, they're both juggernauts. But with the Qs, you get some other companies that are not in tech. And these are, again, America's like creme de la creme of innovative companies, Tesla, uh, NVIDIA, uh, is that in the XLK? It might be. Amazon, um, I think Meta is in communications. So remember the Netflix, some of these companies are now in the communication sector. The other thing about the tech, the sectors in general, I think people have sort of moved off of sectors a little because they're they were designed in a time before the internet kind of just made a lot of things sort of harder to read. Like what is Amazon exactly? And I think the cues sort of capture that thing, that sort of innovative techie, but not all tech strictly spirit that you really get in the United States. And I think that's why the, the cues will get more flows over time than a strict tech ETF that was defined by the gig sector people. I think over the years, um, the gig sectors are just a little stuck in history. And I think that things like the queues and even thematic ETFs have done a really good job kind of exploiting that. And I don't blame the gig sector people. They got to divide them at some point. But to me, the queues, because it does wrap up some of these other companies like a Tesla, because people kind of group Tesla and Apple and Microsoft it together, right? The Super 7 uh, or the FANG names. And so the Qs is has all of them. You don't have to like miss out. If you buy XLK, you miss a couple of these. And if one of them goes crazy, again, you don't have that feeling of like, damn it, I, I should have actually just bought the Qs. So I think people are willing to give up a little, a little of that return in XLK to have that feeling they have a little more diversification of those Fang Super Seven names. Yeah, I. I like your hot sauce analogy. I, I tell everybody that uh, nobody has better analogies than uh, Eric Balchunas. But um, how long do you think this QQQ rally can last? And and can you draw any parallels between this and, and the dot-com bubble? Is that even possible? History does rhyme, if not repeat, especially in markets. And how, how can these valuations stay these high, uh, this high? But we thought higher interest rates would be what changed the regime. Uh, but it didn't. And and so I don't know. And some people are like, well, 
you can't buy the Qs now because it's it's now gone up another forty seven percent. But I'm like, people were saying the Qs are over, you know, a hundred percent ago, uh, five <laughs> years ago. It was supposed to end a long time ago. All these people, the quants, value was supposed to take over. In the 2000s, small cap value was up something like 100%. And the Qs and the S&P were flat to down. And that was a decade. So you're right. If and when it happens that our our psyches just change, it's possible you have this long run where it's flipped and the Qs lags for 10 years and stuff like small cap value or international uh, goes up. But, you know, again, I, it's hard to call that because people have been calling it for a while. There's two other points here about the cues that I, I think make me more relaxed about how the rallies are justified is, first, these companies own a ton of names. Like uh, Google is my favorite example because it owns YouTube. YouTube could be a total juggernaut stock on its own. I just got YouTube TV. It's awesome. It's the best TV station I ever had or TV package. And that's that's my TV. It's a big part of my life. And YouTube TV is just one part of Google. So these companies, if you actually took a hammer and broke them up, they'd be like five or six juggernaut stocks on their own. So it's really the Super 7 representing about 40 companies. Now, So you, it's more diverse than people think. And that gives it maybe possibly more legs. The other thing is that when you think about intangible assets, we had Kai Wu on our podcast recently. Brand value, IP, uh, human capital, that's how he defines these things that are harder to measure. So if you look by traditional metrics, the queue should not go up anymore. If you quote price to earnings, price to book, it should be done. We should move on to someplace else. But this intangible value is sort of the dark matter that I think helps justify the queue's levels. And I do think that is a scientific way to somewhat explain some of this. But I got to be honest, if you're a traditionally trained CFA and you grew up in the 80s and 90s and you saw the dot-com bubble burst and you're running a portfolio, it, it would be very difficult to load up on the Q stocks or the Super 7 more and more. Every bone in your body says, I've got to go to cheaper stocks. Um, but that that signal has been there for seven, eight years. And this yeah, that why... was kind of the analogy I was making to to the dot com bubble. That it it looks from that at least for this particular category of of stocks like that. I mean, is is it is it too late to jump on the bandwagon? Yeah, I mean, it, it felt like in the dot com bubble though there were a couple stocks that went from zero to sixty pretty quickly. You know, like right. dot com and all that. These companies are basically like if I look at these companies, I mean, I'm a customer of basically all of them for the most part. Uh, they are in my life integral. So that's a little different than, hey, there's this new internet company. Let's just jack up the valuation to you know, the moon. So I, it doesn't feel as frothy, but perhaps it's because it's, it's grown slower. and These companies are so familiar to us. Um, I don't know. It's a great point. But like I said, I think active managers have probably, are, you know, are borderline ready to go to, to the psychologist uh to uh, check themselves in because they're having a major existential crisis here because everything they learn just kind of gets thrown thrown away by the Q's relentless drive on our team we we debate a lot and um we we're marvel at, at the Q's just like everybody else yeah it's incredible and and to your point jeff um we did kind of see an implosion in some of the narrower tech etfs you know the cloud computing etfs 
and things like that. Carvana, Teladoc, a lot of those holdings in the ARKK absolutely crashed in 2022. And they haven't rebounded like we've seen with the Magnificent Seven. So we kind of did already see that dot-com cycle play out, just not in those you know mega cap tech stocks. There's one other point here that is interesting, which is unlike the dot-com bubble or the ARK stocks, I mean, I haven't looked, but I'm looking at the names, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, NVIDIA, Meta, Broadcom, Alphabet, Tesla, Costco, the, especially Apple, Microsoft. The, the amount of cash they have is, is enormous. And I think that's something that you don't typically find in sort of high-flying growth stocks is to have that much cash. And I think that cash provided somewhat of a buffer in the rate rise regime, right? Versus, say, the ARC stocks. And I think that that does make it a little different than the dot-com bubble. Um, these companies are just sitting on piles of cash. Yep, absolutely. And, and the valuations just aren't as high. If you look at something like Meta or Alphabet, they're trading at market multiple, if not less than the market. So that's a little bit different than the dot-com bubble. Eric, since we're on the topic of tech, I want to ask you about a specific part of the tech ecosystem that's gotten a lot of attention this year, and that is AI. There's a number of AI-related ETFs on the market today, some of which hold stocks of AI-related companies and others which use AI to pick and choose which stocks to hold. Do you see this as a theme that has legs or is it going to flame out in the same way that we saw with the robotics ETF several years ago? Generally, I'm more uh, optimistic on the thematic side um, because AI is like if you look at chat, that's like the one that's specifically AI. It's already 61 million. Um, People like to add a little uh, of a theme, like I said, like hot sauce. It fits nicely on cheap beta um, and it's just, you know, okay, I'll put... 0.5% 0.5% of my portfolio in this thing because I think AI is a big deal. So I, I do think there'll be a home for thematic ETFs that are AI focused. Now on the flip side, uh, smart beta ETFs that use AI, I'm more skeptical of. Most of them tend to be very high cost. Like smart beta has done a good job of getting cheap. Like you can get value, growth, momentum, all these for under 20 basis points now. And I'd argue some of them you could probably stretch and say they use AI depending on how you define AI. But for these true like AI machine learning type smart beta or active enhanced ETFs, their their fees are really high. And they also trade a lot. If you look at the turnover, some of them have like massive turnover. Like it's almost like the computer, it just needs stuff to do. So it trades a lot. So AI backed ETFs that use AI to pick stocks better than a human, they honestly have the same problems as a human stock picker, which is that if you trade a lot and have a high fee, the hurdle you have to clear just to get to zero is just larger and larger. And unless you like destroy the index and create some kind of shiny object moment like an arc, I just doubt you'll see any buyers. You know, the IBM one has been out for five years, the one that uses Watson, and that, that's only returned half as much as the S&P. Now it might go on a run, I'm not trashing it, but just a fact. So I just think that until AI either has some kind of taps into some factor and starts to crush it like an arc and have a shiny object moment, or it it starts to compress the fees and become more of a deal. Like, oh, you can get an AI enhanced value fund for 20 basis points. Um, like I said, I think it's just going to, it's going to succumb to the same physics that apply to every other ETF category, whether it's humans or smart beta, which is, are you cheap or are you shiny? And, and right now, AI 
is neither. So that's a, bad, it's a tough place to be. Speaking of Arik, uh, Eric, uh, you know, obviously this was all anyone could talk about in 2020 and 2021. Then we saw the crash last year. Where do we stand today with ARK? It still has, you know, several billion dollars in ARKK and some of the other ones like ARKG. Is it just going to, you know, linger here? Do we need to see positive performance? And then suddenly people are going to start buying these again. How do you see this playing out? Yeah, you know, um, if you look at ARK, they've taken to $200 million this year. Um, you know, not a lot, but I'd argue just the fact that they stayed afloat uh, the way they did with an 80% drawdown, I mean, that is about as nasty as it gets, um, is a miracle. And we've used uh, the three Vs to, to describe why ARC has defied all of the high flyers in eras past. Usually if you have a high flyer like a Janus 20, they have their shiny object moment and they crash and everybody leaves. But mostly ARC retained their investors and the three Vs are Vanguard. The more that Vanguard takes over the core, the more uh, you have patience with your hot sauce because it's got a high active share. You already have the serious stocks covered with your Vanguard fund. So you actually want a little wild and crazy from your hot sauce and they deliver that and they never wavered from it. So even if it goes down, you're like, well, yeah, of course it's going to go down. These are very highly speculative stocks. And I think, you know, Kathy's ability to communicate the future is very good. Um, and then you've got volume. These things, ARC in particular, trades a ton. So people use them to trade around different things. Um, and the volume helps. More people would look at them now that they had they trade over $500 million a day. That's very good. And then the virality. I think um, this goes back to Kathy and the ARC team. They are just very good at getting engagement. I mean, if you, you couldn't name any PM at Fidelity anymore uh, because their compliance officers don't let them say anything. Yet everybody knows Kathy Wood. And because she, she, she's on TV, she says things that are, I, I don't agree with everything she says, but she says things that get you thinking. Um, she's got a Jeff Gunlock uh, gene, in my opinion. And I think that's important because people like knowing that, yeah, I got a little Kathy to compliment my Vanguard. And like I said, they want her to be, they want her to be in the clouds a little bit, you know, five years in the future, talking about, you know, flying cars and, and robots and, and stuff like that. I think, um, I think that's why it's has staying power. And from Kathy's point of view, you know, there's a line in Steve Martin's great biography called Born Standing Up, um, where he goes, at first I wasn't famous enough. And then when the jerk came out, he became too famous. And he goes, right now, now I'm, I'm just right famous. And I feel like Ark is like just right at 13 billion. I think she would even argue that in Ark Mania, it was getting too crazy. She was moving the, the stock prices around with her flows. But 13, 14 billion, I feel like is a is a proper spot for the kind of stuff she buys. Um, so I'm I'm sure she's pretty content with that 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 kind of middle ground between nobody knowing her and Arcmania. Good stuff. Good uh, perspectives there, Eric. I just got one more thing for you before we let you go. Uh, would you buy QQQ at these levels? <laughs> uh, well, I, okay. So first of all, I cannot give investment. Right. Like, like I'm forbidden to do it. We can't make calls at BI. And I wouldn't want to because I'm one of the first people who subscribes to the Bogleosophy of I don't know the future. I just don't. But I do know that people have been saying that it was overvalued for eight, 10 years at this point. Let's just say four or five to be fair. So I don't know. These are great companies to own. So if I had a fund that was like, I don't know, put 
dripping money into the queues. I wouldn't stop it. Um, but again, this is just so I, there's no call either way uh, from me on this. Okay. And it really just breaks down to the fact that the future is unknown. And if anything showed that it's this year, I don't think anybody called for the queues to be up this much or even the market for that, for that matter. And yet here we are. But on the flip side, any rational person um, has probably has the feeling that it, it just feels a little exhausted. So mm -hmm. I think that tension is where everybody is. And, and I, I guess the answer is, I don't know. Okay. And for the record, for our audience, that is not investment advice from Eric Belchunas. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know the future. I don't know what's going to go up or down. I mean, that's so, and I truly mean that. I'm not just saying that because I can't say it. That's my, I, you know, like I said, I'm an ETF analyst, not, not a, I, I don't do macro. All right. Good stuff. Thank you very much, Eric. Thanks for being here and helping us out. You got it. Thanks for having me. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find this and all other Exchange Traded Fighters episodes on ETF.com or on any major podcast platform. See you next week.